being up here is not what I used to do before AA. I don't know about you folks, but I would have long since been drunk by now before I found this program. And thank God for the program of AA. When I first got here, one of the things that, that I hated more than anything else is to, to be called an alcoholic. In fact, I thought the whole notion of having to come to AA was probably the worst thing that would happen to me. And I can stand here today, tonight, and look out at this audience here tonight and tell you that I am truly grateful to be an alcoholic. And I realize tonight that it's okay to be an alcoholic. And it's okay to be like you. And I'm glad you let me come and celebrate my sobriety with you here tonight. I thank you very much for that. Let's start the meeting with a moment of silence followed by the serenity prayer. Thank you, David. You're looking for a miracle and hey, there goes it. Right there. Okay. I know that uh, many of you, before you hear a new speaker, do as leads, like to have a little uh, background on fellow. And I see several from uh, Plays Mill Monday and Thursday, 6.30 meeting over there. They all Plays Mill group. And they have a very short attention span, George. So uh, tonight at dinner with George and his son and wife, I took some copious notes so that I could share with you tonight a little bit of the highlights of George's story. And you're looking close, and I'm going to go pretty fast so we can get George up here to provide uh, some details of this. George drank too much for too many years. He tried to drink in moderation, but he had normal drinkers, but he could not. George found AA. He found the 12 steps of AA. He found a God of his understanding. George learned that he had a choice to drink or not drink one day at a time. As a direct result of not drinking one day at a time and not dying, George has amassed a large number of years without a drink of alcohol. George has had a revolutionary change in attitude about God, life, and his fellow man. He realized that God is doing for him what he could not do for himself. He has peace, serenity, and happiness that he could never have imagined before finding AA. Today, George celebrates his sobriety by playing golf, fishing, and traveling around the country telling this unique story. At the expense of financially struggling local AA groups. <laughs> Did I miss any key points there, George? Please help me give a warm Kentucky AA welcome to George E. from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Thank you, Randy, very much. My name is George. I am an alcoholic. And by the grace of a loving God and the fellowship of alcoholics anonymous, I hadn't found it necessary to take a drink or new dog and drugs since October the 26th, 1966. And for that... Well, I'm very, very grateful. Um... I don't know why you applauded yet. My family applauds every day. That's, I mean, I think, I think that's wonderful. Um, well, Randy told my story, so I'll see you all in the coffee room. Um, I'm a member of the primary purpose group in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, but I didn't start there. I got sober in a small town. As a matter of fact, um, there's more seats in this auditorium and there were people in the town that I got sober. And that, that's true. Uh, I got sober in Williamstown, West Virginia. And uh, my sponsor and I, my first sponsor and I, he was uh, also from Williamstown, and uh, he and I took turns being the town drunk. That's how small the town was. Uh, but I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, and to me it's a privilege to be here. It's a privilege to be able to participate in a meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous. I owe alcohol to my wife. You almost did not have me here tonight as a speaker because 
when Don called and asked if we would speak, uh, he assured me, I mean, really, and promised me that Jack Sullivan would not be here. And I walked in at 2 o'clock this afternoon, and the first person I ran into was Jack Sullivan. So I, I, I will talk to Don after this meeting. I decided to go ahead and stay. But, uh, but it is a privilege to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. You see, I was one of those drunks, and I believe, and my sponsor used to talk about some of us sit here by the grace of God. And I got to Alcoholics Anonymous by the grace of God. And as I understand grace, it means an unwanted gift. But I did nothing to deserve to be here or be able to live this way of life. There was another little old, old-timer from the beach, or one of the other beaches, little Isaac, who used to say, Thank God, God gave me mercy instead of justice. I was also an alcoholic like that. God gave me mercy instead of justice. Because if he'd given me justice, I'd either be dead and in things down or in jail. And uh, that is not what happened. You know, I, I am uh, very thrilled that when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I came to a traditional Alcoholics Anonymous meeting. Um, my story is, uh, is sort of like the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I read myself in that book uh, the whole time. Uh, relating to the alcoholism and also the recovery. Um, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I was like 27 years old. And uh, when I got here, you know, I, I reached a point in my life that I couldn't drink and I couldn't quit drinking. And I think all we alcoholics reach that point. And it's a heck of a place to be. And, uh, but you see, my conception as an alcoholic at that time, you know, I believe all the people that I drank with on the street, you know, they tell you, you know, so there's no way you can be an alcoholic. You know, first of all, you're young, you know, and, and and the way I thought of alcoholism, and I, you know, I believe that I thought that uh, that all alcoholics were old. I mean, real old. I mean, you know, like as old as as Jack Sullivan. I mean, they, I mean, they're really over the hill, and and uh, they didn't have a wristwatch, and they wore a long overcoat in the middle of July, and they, you know, didn't have a wristwatch, and their feet. Had it out of the bottom of their shoes, and it was patent leather shoes, patent cement. And uh, I didn't, I didn't uh, meet that criteria when I came back off now, because I was young. I was 27 years old. I had an old beat up Timex. I didn't own a, a, an overcoat, and that's pretty tough <laughs> where I'm from. I, and, and I might, might as well tell you, and I told you, I served up in Williamstown, West Virginia, but I was raised in in Charleston, West Virginia. Now, I hope, you know, I travel around a lot so that a lot of people can get to see a real live West Virginia. There's not very many of us left. Uh, I had dinner tonight with one, Bill, and Bill from Clay County. Now, that's, that's very popular with West Virginia. Um, but, so when I came to Alcoholic Phenomenon, you know, that's what I conceived of, of, uh, of an alcoholic. But I had reached the point in my life that I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I'd reached the point in my life I couldn't drink and couldn't quit drinking. And I'd reached the point in my life that I was at the port of last resort. You see, I'd been everywhere else for my alcoholism. I'd been a lot of places for my alcoholism. And I was an alcoholic when I started, um, when I was, I started drinking when I was 13 years old. And I do not know what it is to be a social drinker. I really don't. Um, until I was 13 years old, I didn't have a problem with alcohol because I didn't drink. And I was raised in a family that was a half-Christian home. Uh, and I say a half-Christian home because my mother was a very devout Christian, a very fine, fine woman. My father was an alcoholic doctor. And uh, my mother never went to Al-Anon that I know of. But somewhere in her program, her spiritual program, she realized that, that my father was a sick person. I never heard her ever say 
to me or my brother or anybody that he was a bad person. And never has heard him say anything unkind about him. Now she would say that he was a sister. And, and the only thing she would add on to that when I was a child, the only thing she would add on to that is, you see what alcohol's done to your father? I hope you don't drink. And, and I, for the first 13 years of my life, I thought the woman was right. I hated alcohol. I didn't want anything to do with it because I saw what it did. When I was 13 years old, I took a drink of alcohol and realized that my father was a very smart person. And that my mother didn't know what she was talking about. And, uh, but from that very first drink, the reason I say I don't know anything about social drinking, the very first time that I took a drink, I drank to oblivion. I didn't stop to it. And every time I picked up a drink after that, I drank to oblivion. And that continued all through my life. And, 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 and this is the way um, that, it, you know, that I understood alcohol. I believe that one time alcohol saved my life because I was one of those people that, you know, on the out, outward appearance, I was like the perfect guy. You know, I was the paper boy and everybody in the neighborhood loved me and and I was president of the National Junior Honor Society at my school, and I never knew what to get, you know, anything but an A, and I played football, and, you know, the wine, so it's just, it's just, I mean, really, it's just hard. And, and everybody just loved George. But inside, inside, I hated it. I was real uncomfortable with everything. Once I picked up a drink of alcohol, I think it saved my life, because it allowed me to live for a while. I think I would have committed, probably, maybe committed suicide, you know, if I did not drink. Because I think this is the way with alcoholics anyway. You know, a lot of times, and, and I hate to hear this, uh, if you hear people, when they come into alcoholics anonymous meetings and we hear people say to them, well, just don't drink and go to meetings. Just don't drink and go to meetings. I'm telling you, that's dangerous for an alcoholic like me. Because if you strip an alcoholic of alcohol and don't give him anything to change it, he's going to get real, real uncomfortable. And I was that type of alcoholic. So alcohol for a while saved my life, and then it took it. And like I say, I'd been everywhere. You know, I'd gone to, I started going to jail early. You know, that never really worked. Uh, one time I, you know, we had a, an old man in our group one time used to say, if you want to get sober, slap a cop. Uh, well, I'm telling you, I did that one time. When I was about 18 years old, I, I slapped a cop. Now, he explained to me real good why you don't get cops. He really did. And I got sober. I got sober real quick. Now, I didn't say sober. When I got out of jail, I went out and got a drink. But I got sober real quick, and he explained, he was like my higher power at that point. You know, if God would explain that to me, you know, the way he did, I would have been a believer long before I could get him again. But he explained it real quick. And, and so, in this uh, places that I've been, you know, I've gone to, to churches, and I'm one of those that... Um, I don't know. I, <clears throat> I've been a lot of, in a lot of churches. I really have. I've, I've taken a dive for a bowl of soup and I've gone, you know, and I just, I've been dipped and re-dipped and undipped and dedicated and undedicated and, and, and done the whole thing. And, uh, I've been to psychiatrists. You know, that didn't work either. And, uh, so I've been a lot of places. So when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt like I was at the quarter last resort. I, I felt like I had no other place to go. And when I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous, I had a sponsor that was an old drinking buddy of mine. And he preceded me into Alcoholics Anonymous for about six or seven months. And uh, <coughs> his last uh, his last drunk, he and I were sort of met up on the last month. We'd both been away from home a couple of weeks. I used to be one of those traveling drunks, and he, he was also. And we met, um, this was sort of uh, in April of 1966, we met in an old watering hole ours in, in Marietta, Ohio, and it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and 
He was sitting there eating ice cream and drinking gin. And I'm sitting there drinking gin. And we're both trying to get well. And he, he looks over at me and he says, you know, I, I think that uh, I'm going to alcoholic tonight. And, you know, I thought that he really needed to go that way. I mean, a man evidently was sick. I mean, anybody that sit there and drink gin and eat ice cream has got to be a very sick person. I thought that I was uh, controlling myself. And I thought, well, I, what I'll do is control it. Now, I may have a little problem like you're talking about, but every, every once in a while I get a little out of the way, but I'll control it. So I went home and I started doing everything that we talked about in chapter 3 of the big book about college. I drank alone. I only drank when I was alone. And then I was only drink when my wife was with me. And then I only drank when I was on the road. And then I, I didn't drink when I was only at home. And I changed plans. And I did you know, all these things. And, and nothing nothing really happened except I kept getting in this deep and deep and deep. Um, and, and, in October of 1966, I called him. And, and I believe, because our program talked about attraction rather than promotion, and I believe that I was attracted to Alcoholics Anonymous. Because what I did is I watched this man when he went to AA in April, and, and I liked what I saw. His eyes cleared up, his family started having a little more respect for him, the people in the community sort of speak, speaking to him, he was working regularly, he was, you know, and, and uh, I wasn't doing anything. You know, there was nothing. The only time, you know, and, and, and he was the type of alcoholic. Now, you'd have to know him, and there's a few sponsors around that are, what you know, sarcastic. And this man was very sarcastic. Because I'd call him when I was drinking, you know, I'd say, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he'd say, no, George, you did a wonderful job. He said, you, you're just doing a great job drinking you. And the only time I'd see him is like he'd come down and get me out of jail and, and uh, <laughs> I had a suicide attempt one time. I'll tell you about that later, but, um, anyway, I tuned into Alcoholics Anonymous. And, and, and this man took the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous in my hand and he, and he took me in the doctor's attendance. And he started talking to me about alcoholism. Because I thought, you know, the alcoholism that the old people did with us stuff. He explained to me what Dr. Silkwood had talked about. And it was, it was two things that, that were very important to me. The whole chapter was very important to me, but there were two things that I could really relate to. First of all, he talked about the alcoholic. Sometimes it manifests itself in a lot of ways, alcoholism. <laughs> but every alcoholic had the phenomenon of faith. Once they picked up one drink of alcohol, they drank their drink. And I could relate to that. I understood exactly what he was talking about. And the next one that he talked about, he talked about the alcoholic has lost the ability to know the truth from the fault. He called it out. And I could relate to that. Because, see, I could rationalize and justify every drink I ever took. And, um, and I've lied to myself and, and everything else. The sponsor also, when he talked to me about alcoholism, he told me that alcoholism was a physical, mental, and spiritual illness. And, and a lot of times, I like to talk about recovery, and, and that's what, you know, the theme for the, the weekend is celebrating sobriety and, and the recovery, and, and I don't like to talk too much about drinking, but Kevin's here tonight from Ohio, and, and, and I showed it up right next to Ohio, in West Virginia. And you know in Ohio, if you don't qualify from this podium, if you're not college, somebody's going to come up here and just be down from the podium. So I'd like to tell you a little bit enough about that, that at least you all know that I took a drink. But what I like to relate to is to tell you where I was in those three areas in my life when I came to alcoholics now. Physically, I weighed 254 pounds. And I did not go uh, to treatment. I didn't go to detox. I didn't go. I mean, the only thing around at that time in that little small town was a jitter joint. Way, way out of town from there. You understand? You remember the jitter joint? Because were the places that alcoholics used to run and they'd take it. It was very mysterious. And you can learn a lot of things at those jitter joints. But I stayed away from that. You know, when I wanted to get off of a drunk, I walked the streets of that little town and just, 
just white knuckles until I could get off of the drink. Um, and so I, I weighed 254. I was bloated, you know, and, and that is where I was physically. Mentally was a different story. Now, mentally, um, so where I was in my alcoholism, I was at a point in my life when I lost my sea legs. Now, I was an alcoholic that used to like to go down there. I mean, I went a lot of places. I mean, I just didn't drink at home until I lost my sea legs when I couldn't get out. And then I stayed at home and I stuck on that box until I could either make a decision to get off of it or whatever. But where I was mentally with my alcoholism, I walked around all the time in fear, intending things, because I knew that they were after. Now, I know maybe the Alanons don't understand who they are, but the alcoholics know who they are. Now, I can't tell you what their names are, but they're after. And I used to walk around the house, and I wouldn't answer the door. I wouldn't, you know, now at the time, at the time, and I'm going to get into something that will sort of qualify me as an alcoholic. My first wife. Now, the reason I said, you know, if I say first wife, all of a sudden you know that I've had more than one. And that itself is a qualification to be an alcoholic. My last wife, uh, Marie, is sitting, I believe, right over there, and she's going to speak to you in the morning. But this is not the wife that I'm talking about. My first wife. And she was about 115 pounds. Little Irish girl. And if she wasn't in the house to protect me from them, those people that were after me, then I had to have a butcher knife by the bed. I had to have all the televisions on, the radios on, all the lights on in the house. You know, and I'd peek out the curtains. I wouldn't answer the door. You know, Bill Wilson used to call, I'm not... You know, I'm one of those romantic alcoholics anyway. I love that terminology. We used to call it children of the night. You know, and that's what I was. You know, I never went out in the daytime and all that. I went out at nighttime. You know, I liked somehow I felt, you know, sort of protected or whatever. But mentally, that's where I was. And there was another part of the mental part of the alcoholism that I went through that maybe, I don't know if y'all can relate to it or not. But <laughs> I was the type of alcoholic that couldn't watch Ben Casey or Dr. Kildare on television. Because the, if I did, the next day I had the disease. I mean, I don't care whether you could catch it in this country or not, I had the disease. I've had, I've had elephantitis, I've had, uh, I've had every, I was pregnant twice. Uh, thank God I aborted, uh, but, but it sounds funny to talk about now, but it's very, you know, it's very serious. I, when I was 23 years old, I had a series of heart attacks. I mean, bad, bad heart attacks. And I don't know if any of you sobered up in a small town or not, but in a small town, you've got one doctor. And that one doctor has an office, and he has all those machines in his office. So you don't go to the hospital, you go to the doctor. And whoever gets there first in the morning gets seen first. You know, there's no appointment or whatever. And this little doctor, Doc Bateman, up in Williamstown, West Virginia, I drove this man crazy. I'd go over to his office. I can remember one time I went 13 days, every day, I was there at 8 o'clock in the morning. Drunk, but I was, I was having this heart attack. And he'd put me on the EKG machine, and he'd do all this stuff, and he'd say, George, you're fine. Get out of my office. I've got patients to see. Everything's okay. Well, the 14th day, now I was a traveling salesman, and the 14th day I was about an hour and a half, two hours from home, sitting in a, a big industrial complex, talking to a person, a very intelligent person, that I was trying to sell products to. And uh, it was 8 o'clock in the morning, and I hadn't had a drink yet. And all of a sudden, the big one hit. And you know the one Red Fox talked about? I mean, the big one hit. So I looked across at this intelligent person, I said, well, you probably don't realize it, but I'm dying right here in front of you. And I think if you'll excuse me, I'll try to get back home, and maybe they can save me. And he excused me, said, that's fine, George, please, that's, you know, don't. Uh, never did sell that man too much. Uh, but anyway, 
I came back and made, you know, two or three calls on the way, stop long distance on the side of the road, you know, calling this first wife and saying, well, you know, make arrangements at the hospital because if they can save me, you know, it'd be nice. And so I got home, you know, in the general hospital at that time is not a real good place to put us out the hospital, especially the type I was. Because there I was, like 23 years old, and I walked in with this little ditty bag, and, and I went in there, and they said you're on the third floor of 328, and even I, I wasn't that run down yet, I knew that 328 was on the third floor, so I stood up to go over and go to the elevator, and uh, to go up to the third floor, and they said, oh no, you can't walk. And they put me in a wheelchair. Well, I knew I wasn't going to make it to the third floor then. And then I got to the third floor. And to make a long story short, we run a series of tests and diagnosed this. And the way we diagnosed this was the doctor said I was overworked and I had hypertension. Now, I'm a dumb West Virginian and I still don't know what hypertension is. And let me tell you about overwork. This alcoholic father... We had a little family business, and I was a salesman, my brother was a salesman, had two or three other salesmen, and my father and mother ran this business back 100 miles from where I was. <coughs> but he was an alcoholic, and he and I, I never listened to anything. We fought like cats and dogs. Matter of fact, you know, I used to say I was never fired from a job when I came to alcoholic country. That wasn't true. I was fired every week. He'd get mad and fire me. Now let me tell you the, the, the story on this, and you'll understand this with alcoholics. This little mother of mine was not only a partner in the business, but she was the place. And we paid, we had bi-week or bi-monthly paycheck. We got paid every other week. He'd fire me one week. Now see, I was the baby boy. And if I wasn't on the payroll the next week, he didn't get it. So he'd hire me back the next week. We'd both get our checks, and then he'd fire me the next week. So you can tell by that I wasn't overworked. And so this is this is where I was with my mental and physical condition. Seriously, I can sum up real quick. Now, I don't know how they do it in Kentucky, but in West Virginia, when they build a church up there, or at least the church that I went to, if they build a church up there, if they don't build it by a stream or a river so they can dunk it, <coughs> they build something in the church where they will dunk it. And uh, when I was 12 years old, I wasn't like any other little boy. They uh, they put a little white robe on me, and they took me down that tank, and they sucked me down into that water. And when I came up, I was sputtering, and, and I walked out of church and never went back until I came down college tonight. And I still resent the preacher a little bit because I think he held me down too long. I really do. I mean, I might today give him a chance to explain himself, but I just... But spiritually, that's where I was because when I walked out of that church, I became, and I came into Alcoholics Anonymous. And of course, you know, we all come in here to meet. And I was no different. Everybody wants to have other diseases and, you know, whatever. Well, I told my sponsor, this man, when I came in there, I said, Brother, you know, I don't know whether this is going to work for me, you know, because I'm an atheist. And he said, George, wait a minute. Now, remember, I told you a little sarcastic. He said, let me tell you something. He said, you are too rum dumb and too dumb to even know what an atheist is. You know, an atheist can prove the non-existence of God. You can't prove the non-existence, so don't call yourself an atheist. He said, if you want to call yourself an agnostic, so I thought, well, that, that's got a nice name to it. Um, and I thought that made me unique a little bit, until one day he explained to me, he said, you know, there's a chapter in the big book that talks about we agnostic. It does not say George the agnostic, or the only agnostic in alcoholic phenomenon. It says, we have nothing. He said, therefore, there must be a lot of the first people that came into Alcoholics Anonymous that had trouble with God. So that's the way I walked in here with you people. And, and I wish that I could say at this point, you know, and I started going to meetings, and, and uh, I don't know, you hear, you know, you hear some things today, you know, I don't know where we pick them up, but 
I don't know, 90 and 90 is the one. You know, I, don't, I don't understand 90 and 90. Because uh, my sponsor never said that to me. You know, I don't think that. Hey, hey, I'm not up here trying to change anything. I'm just saying, I don't know where to go. I'm glad they didn't say it to me when I walked in. Because I was one of the, I'm telling you, the type of alcoholic I was, if I'd got 90 meetings, then I'd have got out and got drunk. My sponsor, all he did was said, you're going to a meeting, and he'd call me every night, and we went to a meeting every night. For a year and a half, I went to a meeting. Now, I was wondering what these, what these alcoholics, what these old-timers used to call a teacher. And I really was not a teacher. Um, because I didn't take two steps. I'm not very good in mathematics either, so maybe you can add it up for me, but I took practice. What I did is I took the first part of step one, and moved out of trials over alcohol, and then I jumped all the way down to one-third of step 12. I went out and carried the message. I don't know what a half and a third is, but it's not two. But... I did this for a year and a half. And the reason why I talk about, you know, the suicides and, and so forth and stripping the alcoholics, because you see what happened to me after a year and a half doing this every night, uh, of, of going to AA and just not drinking. I got into, uh, I was closer to committing suicide than I ever was drunk. Now, I was a suicidal alcoholic. Let me explain to you the type of suicidal alcoholic I was. I was a suicidal alcoholic that wanted to commit suicide by jumping in front of a parked car. Because I didn't want to hurt myself. That period that I told you about, you know, I I was up on the Ohio Bridge one night over the the Great Ohio River, and I was going to commit suicide. Now, I wasn't, I, I drew a crowd, I had six or seven people up there, and I didn't get too close to the rail because I didn't want to fall, you know. And I always like to tell this, though, because I really truly believe that, you know, that we have a daily retreat, and that we're, you know, we stay sober one day at a time, and, you know, if I go back out there and I happen to be on an Ohio bridge or over the Mississippi or wherever, you'll know how to get me down from the, from the bridge. My sponsor, he wasn't my sponsor at that time, but he was in Alcoholics. Somehow they called him and he came up. And these were the magic words that he told me to get me off that bridge so I wouldn't jump and kill myself. Uh, he said, George, let's go down to Murphy's Bar and Grill and I'll buy you a drink and we'll talk about it. And I beat him off the bridge. I thought that was, I thought that was a good idea, you know. So. That's the way I was when I was drinking. And I'm not making fun of suicide. Believe me, I'm not. I've had dear friends and Alcoholics Anonymous commit suicide. And I know alcoholics commit suicide. But I'm a true believer that most alcoholics, and this is only my opinion, I'm not saying, that most alcoholics commit suicide from a dry period, not a wet period. It's because they can't handle sobriety. Not because, somehow we muddle through the drinking. But you strip us from alcohol and don't give us anything to change, and we white knuckle, we're liable to commit suicide. Because that day, after a year and a half of doing that, I was right there. And I walked up to an old timer's home in Marietta, Ohio, and this man's sobriety dated back to the early 40s in Pittsburgh. He had moved down to Marietta from, from Pittsburgh. And, I don't know, he 25, 26 years at that time. And I went to Glenn's house, and I said, Glenn, you know, I'd be better off drunk than I am the way, the way I am right now. And you know, the old timers and, and all have told us, you know, that we owe the newcomer the truth. And this man told me the truth. Thank God he told me the truth. So he looked me right in the eyes and he said, yep, you're right, George, you would be better off. But there's a way out. And he said, the way out is contained within the 12 steps of alcoholic tonight. The program of alcoholic tonight. 
And you know, I had to admit to him, I said, I don't know anything about the puzzle of, you know, the 12 seconds. I said, what are you talking about? And he said, well, if you really want, if you really want what we have, and if you really want to get sober, if you really want to be joyous, happy, and free, and if you really want what this program offers, I'll walk you through the steps. Now, I mentioned this and talk about this because a lot of times, you know, we have certain meetings and say the most important person in Alcoholics Anonymous is that newcomer. I don't always think that's true. I've been in meetings where newcomers have been sitting there and they don't even know they're in a meeting. They're whistling and da 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 I'm not saying it's not important to talk to them, but I'm just saying what is important is that maybe there's somebody in our program or in our meetings that's two years later, ten years later, fifteen years later, twenty-five years later, that has not heard the message of the twelve steps. Now I'm not saying that we put qualifications on people going out and carrying the message of alcoholics knowledge. I think any drunk that's sober one day can go out and twelve steps. I think they can go to, to to another drunk and say, I went to Alcoholics Anonymous and I stayed sober a day. If you want that, come with me. And I think that's what we do. But there's also a message in this rough step that thank God Glenn told me about. So if there's anybody that's hurting and in pain and you've had a problem like I have and, and you're in that state, uh, Get an old timer like Glenn and let him walk you through the steps, because that's exactly what Glenn said. He said, I'll walk you through the 12 steps of alcoholism. And we started, and we started talking about step one. And see, I was messed up there. I was one of those alcoholics who took step one and reversed it. I really did. I reversed it. My life's unmanageable because I drink. And if you take the step that way and look at the step that way, then it's very logical to say, if I quit drinking, then I'll be manageable. But see, that isn't what the step says. You know, he said, Glenn told me, he said, you know, it's just, you know, we talk about alcohol being the problem. Alcohol wasn't my problem. You know, if you take someone that breaks out in hives because they eat seed tomatoes, all they have to do is quit eating seed tomatoes and they ain't going to break out in hives. But you see, that's not the way that me with my alcohol. See, I have alcoholism. And, and so, Glenn explained to me that there was a hyphen in that step. That I, I was tireless over alcohol hyphen. Which means there's a separate thought coming. That my life became unmanageable. And when I took the step that way, then I could go on and take the rest of it. If I took it the way I was taking it, there was no way to go through two feet well. So I had to look at that step and, and, and accept my alcoholism and, 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 you know, like it says in chapter three, you know, concede to my innermost self. You know, there's a couple things in that step that, that we alcoholics don't really like. One of them is the power greater than ourselves, and the other one is if you're going to restore someone to sanity, that means they've been insane. Excuse me, you know, I, I'm, I'm an alcoholic and, and, and all that and, 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 you know, beat my kids and take my wife and do whatever, but don't call me nuts. You know, I mean, I just, I got a real problem with that. But you see, he started to sit down and explain to me, he says, you know, the word change denotes a period of time. It means I came to believe over a period of time. And the word sanity, he started to explain to me, you know, if, and I used to think that when they were talking about the insanity of alcoholism, that it was all the crazy things that we drunks did under the influence of alcohol. Like standing on tables or throwing things or whatever, you know, whatever you do. You know, if you take a 93-year-old choir woman who's never had a drink in her life and give her a bit of early time, she's going to do some crazy things. Now, that doesn't necessarily make her an alcoholic, but she's going to do some crazy things. <coughs> he started talking to me about obsession. You know, obsession is, is, is a form of insanity. You know, if I stood up here tonight and told you that I took toilet paper and I hid it all over my car, I hid it all over my house, everywhere I went, I took a roll of toilet paper, 
If the cops stop me, I admitted to taking two feet. You say he's crazy. Well, you see, I did the same thing with alcohol. Did the exact same thing. And so I started learning what, he started explaining to me what the insanity was. But each time, I took that drink time and time again. My sponsor one time went down to a mental hospital. And in West Virginia, they got, I don't know if they still have, but they had, they still have the mental hospital, but I don't know if they still have what they called alcohol training rooms. At the state hospital. Yeah, you know, they put them in there and going to train them. I don't know what they're going to train them to do, but anyway, they were on the ground in the same place with the crazy people. So they asked my sponsor to come down and speak at this meeting. And so he was standing up there giving his, you know, AA story. And one of the crazy people, the West Virginia had been crazy and had never walked the streets again. You know, he thought he was a sheriff or something. He walked in and he sat down on the front row and started listening to my sponsor. Well, after my sponsor was through talking, the crazy one come up and said, can I ask you a question? So you learn when you go into the mental hospitals, you don't really say no to those people. And you say, well, certainly. Yeah, go ahead. He said, well, if alcohol did all that to you, why'd you drink it? <laughs> now this guy's crazy. <laughs> I mean, he's nuts. My sponsor and I walked out of the mental hospital. <laughs> this guy's crazy. Right. But I understood, I understood what he's talking about when he's restored me to sanity. And then I came to step three. Now, I'm not up here lecturing on steps. Please don't think I'm lecturing on steps, but I'm not. I'm trying to share my recovery with you. And anything I would say is my opinion anyway. I mean, don't, I don't speak for alcoholics and others, and I'm not trying to lecture at all. I'm just trying to share with you my recovery through what was so important to me. Because it's the program of alcoholics and others. But I came to step three, and, and, and Glenn explained to me that really this is the first step to recovery. You know, he, he said, you talk about step one and step two. Step one is the problem, step two is the solution, and, and then we start applying the solution. You know, if I went to a, if I went to a doctor and gave him the symptoms, you know, I've got headaches, I'm growing up, I've got this, this, and this, he, you know, that's the problem. All of a sudden he's going to diagnose the problem. You know, he's going to say, well, you've got the flu. Now, that's step one. The next thing he's going to do is he's going to say, you go home and get eight hours bed rest, take orange juice, take this penicillin, do this, do this, and do that. Fine. Now we got the problem, we got the solution. But there ain't going to be nothing done for my flu until I go home and get eight hours of bed rest, take the penicillin, and do that. And this is what Glenn was explaining to me that I was starting to do, was starting to fly this loop. Because I'm an alcoholic, you know, I, I, I looked at step three and I thought immediately we're talking perfection here. We're talking about I'm taking my will, shooting it up to God, he's shooting it back down, all of a sudden I'm walking out through here just perfect and they're going to kiss the hem of my garment. You know what I mean? Just, then to George, it does not say that. It says you turn your life and your will over the care and protection of God. Fill your life, fill your will if you're in God's hands. And he says also, you know, this takes fear away. And in the fourth step, we start talking about a fearless inventory. So even a dumb West Virginian like you knows that fearless means less fear. And the only thing that takes fear away is faith. You know, I was one of those alcoholics, and, and I love, you know, the slogans and all the stuff that they tell us, you know, when we come into alcoholics anonymous. Because my sponsor looked at me one time and he told me, he said, you know, he said, fear knocks on the door, faith answered, no one was there. And I walked around all the time, just thinking that, all the time. Because this is, this is what I needed, you know, to stay sober. And so I looked at the inventory, and then I started looking at the inventory. Now, I'm one of those drunks that I, I don't know if any of you are like that or not, but when I walked in Alcoholics Anonymous, the second day I was there, I knew the fourth step 
was important. I just knew it. Everybody talked about it. It was a very serious thing. It was real important. They talked about it meeting. I didn't know anything about it, but they talked about it meeting. And so in this attempt, you know, even though I was only doing these fractions of steps, in these attempts, you know, I'd attempt the fourth step. I'd go hear somebody talk at a, uh, you know, at a, at a meeting, and, and they'd say, well, uh, uh, I sat down on the john and wrote my fourth step. So I'd go home and I'd sit down on the job and write my fourth step. Or they'd say, I did this and I did that. You know, I even got into the deal with the pamphlet. You know, the pamphlets that the outsiders wrote to tell us how to work our program. I never did understand that. I mean, I mean, I had this, you know, this pamphlet that was written by somebody who was not an alcoholic or an alcoholic anonymous telling me how to work the alcoholic anonymous program. I, well, my sponsor took care of that. I had that pamphlet, I think, one night. You know, I took it to a meeting. I was checking things and he just took it and threw it. He said, it's in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, how to take four steps, very simple, there's three lists. He said, Bill even tells us what types of inventory. He said, there's all types of inventory. You know, they talk about merchants who take inventory. He said, this one says we're going to take an inventory of unsalable goods, things that we don't want. Because, see, I was one of those alcoholics. I pick up on anything you people say. I go to meetings. I heard one guy say, you know, I've been so hard on my thing for so long. That I need to put down asthma. I need to talk good things about it. Well, I told that to my sponsor. I told that to, you know, to Glenn and Glenn said, George, he said, let me explain something to you real quick. He said, the type of alcoholic that you are, just the fact that you think that you have asthma is a liability. <laughs> so he said, why don't you, uh, he said, why don't you do what it says? It talks about three lists. It talks about resentment, fear, and sex contact. Then it talks about the start, how to put them down, the cause, effect, and then your part of it. And so I took the inventory that way. <coughs> I got to the fifth step, and then I found out what was so hard about the fourth step. Because I knew the fifth step was coming. Admitted to God and ourselves and other human beings, that's the nature of our own. You know, and I, it's that, that ego type thing. And, and, and so I took that step with my sponsor, and, and, and he would explain to me, you know, it seems after the third step, we talk about preparation, or he would talk about preparation step, and then action step. And then the fourth step I wrote, I prepared to do something. In the fifth step, I took an action. I did it. I admitted it. I got all that garbage out. In the sixth step, I prepared again. I became entirely dead. In the seventh step, <laughs> I took the action. I humbly asked And then the eighth step, I'm preparing again. I'm sitting down and I'm making a list. But now here's how sick I was. Green loved it. I started sitting down and started making this amends list. <coughs> now on this amends list, the first person I could think to put down on this list was when I was, I don't know, 18, 19 years old, drunk in my hometown. I was walking down the boulevard one night, about 3 o'clock in the morning, and there was a nightclub that I used to go to that was upstairs. Where they, well, we had speakeasies back then. In West Virginia, it was a dry state. It's amazing how I became an alcoholic, but it was a dry state. But we had all these speakeasy nightclubs, you know. This one happened to be up the stairs. And, and I tried the door, and it was locked. We know how we alcoholics get paranoid, so I thought, well, they're all up there partying and, and drinking and raising hell and, and won't let me in. So I just tore the door down. Well, when I got upstairs and got into the place, there's nobody there. I mean, they'd closed it, I guess. So I just left and went somewhere. I don't know. Years later, I'm sitting down here making a fourth step, or making an eight-step lift. They're the first person I think of. i got to make a man. He looked at me and said, are you crazy? He said, let me tell you something. So that step says, people that we had harmed, it does not say hurt. So, you know, bartenders, you know, I used to hurt bartenders. I'd call them certain names or whatever, and hurt their feelings or whatever. And then they'd throw me out and hurt something of mine. And, but 
that was all gone, you know, but I, that was very important to me, you know, it hurt. He said, harm is, is physical or mental, but it's lasting. He said, these are the people that we want to make amends to. We want to make amends to employers, family, close friends, you know, these types of people. And so that's what I had to put on the list. So then now I'm ready to take an action in the ninth step. Now the ninth step, I was another one of those. Three days into Alcoholics Anonymous, I found the ninth step. <coughs> now I like to mention this because I, if there's someone here that's in the small loan business, I, I don't want to offend you. But small, small loan companies, Really, I mean, they all are run by a guy by the name of Mr. Shapiro, and he has sunglasses. Small loan companies only exist because of us alcoholics. I'm telling you that. I mean, who else is going to pay 40 percent interest? I mean, is it? And, and where I was living, I lived in West Virginia, but right across the river from Ohio, you could type loan companies. In West Virginia, you could borrow 500 dollars. But in Ohio, you can borrow 2000 I could go over in Ohio and pay all four West Virginia loan companies. I mean, what? So I found that one right away. You know, I walked in there and said, well, there it is. So in three days sober, I went out and told everybody I was going to pay it. So, well, you know, I'm doing this wonderful thing now. I'm staying sober. I'm going to pay it. Now, when I legitimately got to the ninth step, Glenn explained to me the spirituality of this step. He said, George, it's not an amends until you pay it. That never dawned on me. Hello, all you do is tell them. Same thing, see, with the stars. The same thing with the people I was making the other amends to. Because I can't keep doing those actions over and over again. I can't keep doing those things until I you know, make those amends. Then I came to the tenth step, and, and, and it was Glenn explained to me, you know, I had the words meant something. And it says, continue. That means I've done it before. Continue to take this in the So that must mean it's similar to the fourth step. But now he, he explained to me, and this is only his interpretation, he said, now you can put the ninth step Because now you're living a spiritual way of life. And now you're reviewing your day. Now you're talking about things that you do good and bad. And, and so that's, you know, I started working the tenth step like that. And then I came to the eleventh step. And you know, I was one of those alcoholics that I missed the last part of the 11th step. Completely. I thought all, you know, what I interpreted the 11th step was that I'm praying for his knowledge and will for his, you know. I now today, I don't want to try to complicate that. I now today believe that what he wants me to do, his will for me is to stay sober and do the things that I have to do to stay sober. And I believe the power to carry it out is what I need. That's the reason I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, because I feel the power of my God, the God of my understanding, in every AA meeting I've been to. Matter of fact, now I don't want to upset Jay, I don't want to upset you, Alan. But there's, a, there's an old man in, in a group back in West Virginia who used to tell me, and he believes this, that God is an alcoholic. Now I'll tell you why. God is at every AA meeting that I've ever been at, even closed AA meetings. And God knows you've got to be an alcoholic to be at a closed meeting, right? But seriously, I do feel the power. Sometimes stronger, sometimes, you know, not as strong maybe, but I feel the power of God at every AA meeting. That's where I go to get the power because see, as an alcoholic, I'm not good at, I'm just not good at uh, doing these things, accepting. No, I was one of those alcoholics, I thought if you accepted something, that meant you liked it. You know, that, that didn't make any sense either. You know? If I'm going to ask for acceptance, I have to ask God to give me the power to carry that out. Any, any of these things that I, that I do, I have to ask for the power to carry it out. I have to draw on the power. And then I came to step 12. And step 12, you know, is broken in three parts. And, and, and after doing the previous 11 steps, I had a spiritual awakening. And then it says we try to carry this message to other alcoholics. Now it doesn't say what alcoholics are driving. 
These other alcoholics. I think because of the traditions of alcoholics anonymous that every time I walk in this room, it's your responsibility to cross that me. On the same token, I think when you walk in the room, it's my responsibility to cross that I think that's what alcoholics anonymous is all about. And then we try to carry this practice of these principles more, I think. You know, I talk about the recovery, I talk about the steps, and, and talk about what it's done in my life, and, and my life is good today. My life's wonderful because of how far it's been. But it hasn't always been sweet, you know. A couple of years ago, you, you know, I got into a deal where, where these principles started eroding. Because I wasn't, you know, we had a daily reprieve, depending on the maintenance of my spiritual condition. And sometimes when we get complacent, and sometimes when things get, then we start doing things, we revert back. And we start doing things that, that aren't the way we're supposed to live. You know, I got in a period of that in my, in my life. But I didn't take a drink of alcohol. I kept going to alcoholics and all and I tried to keep practicing this person. You know, I talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I dearly love Alcoholics Anonymous. Alcoholics Anonymous is my life. You'll hear Marie talk in the morning uh, about Alcoholics Anonymous, and, and she's the most enthusiastic person I've ever heard talk about Alcoholics Anonymous. But I know how she lives like that. And our home is an A.A. home. It's drunk in and out of that all the time. And that's the way I choose to live. That's the way I want to live. And, and you know, I've been through all the stages that go, that we go through in Alcoholics Anonymous. When I was six or seven years sober, uh, I was in that stage where, uh, some of us get, I know, I'm sure everybody doesn't, but some of us get where we're just spiritually arrogant. Where we're just, I mean, we've got the whole deal. Matter of fact, I, the point where I was when I was six or seven years sober, I mean, Bill Wilson would call me before he made a move. Understand what I'm saying? At this time in my life, at this time in my life, and, and I like to tell this story not for you, but for me. In this time in my life, I was sponsoring a guy in West Virginia by the name of Pete. And Pete was a drunken barber. Matter of fact, he cut hair better drunk than he did sober. God's truth. He gets sober, the man had to find another job. He couldn't cut hair sober. And the reason I say this is because sometimes we hear things in alcoholics knowledge and you hear the thing is, well, Pete is a loser. And I used to call Pete a loser. Because Pete was one of those people that came to alcoholics knowledge and then all of a sudden something would happen and he'd go back out and he'd stand back again and he kept coming back. And at this point where I was sponsoring him, of course I took a little pride in that. You know, we, some of us humble people gone, take some pride every once in a while. But he was sober the longest when I was sober, uh, when I was sponsoring him. He was sober about 14 months. And like I say, even I called him the loser because he kept, you know, this much. Well, after 14 months of sobriety, he went out and got drunk. And he ended up in North Carolina, and he ended up in the Veterans Hospital, and his liver broke. Forty-three years old. And they took him back to West Virginia to bury him, and I went down to the funeral home. Now, I don't know how you do it down here, but up in West Virginia, we just don't throw him in the ground. We, we stay at the funeral home two or three days. And then we put him in the ground. So I went to the funeral home the first night, too. Pay respects to Pete's family and so forth. And I walked in and I saw a man standing over in the corner and he was one of these country boys and he had these rosy cheeks, you know. Looked like a, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid raised up in West Virginia, you know, your mother used to take a washcloth, dry washcloth, and make your cheeks rosy. So you, I mean, I knew that sounds sick, but I mean, you know, we wanted the neighbors to think we had healthy children. But, this is the way this guy looked. It looked like, you know, he had his way. He just looked wonderful. He's still over there, but he looked familiar to me, but still, I didn't know who he was. Well, I didn't say anything. And next night, I went back to the funeral home, and he was there again. He came in the corner, and finally got to him. I said, let me tell you something. 
And I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I started working in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I gave a meeting somewhere out in the country there, outside of the coffee. And so I got my family back, and he said, everything was wonderful. And you know, I still couldn't remember Mr. Spiritually Arrogant, Mr. AA, you know. I couldn't, still couldn't even remember the process. So finally I had to ask him, I said, well, who's your father? He said, you're looking at him in the face. That Jesus not talking. And when he said that, he did. Because you see, Pete, in his moments of alcoholic phenomenon, when he was saved, he carried the message of And if he would go to this man, Mr. Spiritually Arrogant, he was sober six years at that time, didn't even bother to even talk to the man after that first 12 step call, but he took this man to me. He sit down and talk to him about the book, Alcoholics Anonymous. He worked the steps with his name. He carried the message. So I said to you that, that there are no losers in Alcoholics Anonymous. That a loser is a winner who keeps trying. And you see, he did that. He carried that message. And it's always good for me to remind myself of that. And I hope tonight. If I've done anything, that I've carried just one tenth of the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. That he carried to that old boy back in that And I appreciate you and love you. Thank you.